This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. I got to know today's guest, Don Matez, through our mutual friend and colleague, Dr. Pam Popper of Wellness Forum Health. Pam had recommended Don's book, Powered by Plants, and I did want to get around to reading it, but I kind of flatter myself that I would know what was in it. I've written, co-written three books on plant-based nutrition. I've read pretty much all of them. I've looked at thousands of research studies, and I didn't think there'd be that much new in it. It would maybe be a new twist, and of course, everyone's got their own unique voice, and Don has a great backstory from having gone from vegetarian to being seduced by paleo for a while, and then recovering and writing this book, partly in response to what he saw as his own logical failings in accepting some fallacies of the paleo movement. So I thought that'd all be interesting. What I didn't count on was how much new stuff there would be in this book for me. And we'll get into a lot of that in the interview. But one of the first things I admit to Don is that I didn't finish the book by the time the interview started. It's because I couldn't. It's because I couldn't skim it the way I'm used to skimming books on a topic that I know a lot about. There is so much richness in here, so much to ponder, so many things I wanted to follow up, look through the bibliography, and know more about myself. This really is a masterpiece of investigative journalism, of putting together a big picture, much bigger than just plants are good for you, much bigger than the politics of food marketing, it, it really is a tremendous work. And so it is with great pleasure that I present you this interview. So without further ado, Don Matez, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working my way through your fantastic book, Powered by Plants. And I have to admit, I have not finished it yet, which is which is it's rare for me to admit. And it's also rare for me to not finish it. I, I gave myself what I thought was plenty of time. But there is a lot of stuff in here. This is a very, very, we say, uh, fact and evidence dense piece of writing. The, the amount of research you put into this has been remarkable. And first of all, I want to I I thank you for the work and commit to, uh, to finishing it because the parts I've read so far have been just amazing. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it took me a long time. I don't remember how long. And truly, there is a lot of research behind it. It's the culmination of research that actually started before I uh, recommitted to a plant-based diet uh, during my what I call my paleo days, spelled D-A-Z-E, <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, just went from there. Well, let's, yeah, let's let's talk about that, because you said you, you're recommitting to a plant-based diet, so I'm guessing you were vegetarian at some point, and then you um, were convinced um, to try paleo. So what's, tell us your, before we get into the, the, the evidence, tell, tell us your own um, journey. When I was about 20 years of age, I, I um, adopted a lacto-ovo-vegetarian diet. And there was a period of, of time leading up to that where I was 
eating more and more plant-based and believe that aside for the moment. So I spent, during my college years, I started as a pre-med major, but I ended up being a philosophy major. And uh, my specialty was Asian philosophy, and I I became, um, essentially became a Buddhist. And, uh-huh. and, of course, that led me to think about the ethics of what I was eating, and uh, that was a major, major reason that I adopted a, a lacto-vegetarian diet at that time. Um, at the same time, I was into athletics, athletic performance, and I had read the sports medicine book by Gabe Merkin, and he was he was recommending, as were most sports nutritionists then, as as now, recommending a predominantly plant-based diet, uh, high in carbohydrate to improve your athletic performance. So those two things dovetailed, and I said, well, why not? I mean, (laughs) the two things come together, so we'll just go on that path. So I then, because of my interest in Asian philosophy, I kind of gravitated towards the macrobiotic style of of, uh, plant-based eating, and for about 12 12 or so years, I was <clears throat> varying degrees of plant-based, um, sometimes vegan, sometimes more lacto-ovo-vegetarian, sometimes more like pesco-vegetarian, meaning small amounts of fish now and then. Um, <clears throat> the largest portion of that time was mostly vegan. Um, and then... Uh, <laughs> With more the more details are in the book, but my first wife, who was trained as a macrobiotic cook, um, and I got exposed to the paleo diet arguments through a book called Neanderthin. I don't know if you've heard of that by Ray Audet, um, and it gave a very interesting argument. It was basically a huge naturalistic fallacy, but I kind of fell for it given my circumstances and state of mind at the time. <clears throat> and uh, and so I decided to go paleo for what I thought were sort of evolution-based scientific reasons as, as well as some, I was, um, I made a number of mistakes when eating plant-based being at that time, I just wasn't, I wasn't knowledgeable enough. <clears throat> the biggest mistake not take, was not taking a vitamin B12 supplement on a regular basis. So I wasn't, I wasn't getting the maximum possible benefits from a plant-based diet. And, uh, so, so what were, what were the, the key arguments in the end, I have in my notes here to ask you, like, what attracted you to paleo? Was it principally the, the arguments that seemed airtight, even though it was a naturalistic fallacy as you see it now? Was it more, um, you know, an, an emotional appeal or was it like a, a story? Because I think, you know, it's I think it's it, extremely it, important as, as you've written a book now to to kind of talk about the paleo movement to understand where all the energy is coming from. 
It yeah, is. I think that you, as you said you didn't finish the book yet. So when you get to the last chapter, so yeah, the first introduction in the last chapter, I kind of covered that directly or indirectly. So I think part of it is uh, what I explained in the first chapter of or introduction to the book is that most of us live in a what is now called by Melanie Joy's appellation a carnistic society. So we believe that eating meat or some type of animal product is normal, natural, and necessary. And so our tendency is if anything goes wrong with someone who because we're taught this from a very early age, I mean, people are saying, if you don't finish your chicken, you're not going to grow up to be big and strong or whatever, you know. Our parents and our whole society pass along that whole deeply embedded belief system. So when we grow up and we become adults and we become rationally convinced, perhaps, that a plant-based diet is best for us, um, we still have this deep emotional attachment to eating animal products that started from an early age because of this kind of indoctrination that we get from our entire society. So as soon as we see something go wrong, like I don't think my nails are growing as fast or I'm getting colds more frequently, which is something that uh, happened to me when I was living in a northern climate. I wasn't getting adequate sunshine. I was living in Seattle and um, I hadn't I wasn't even at that time aware of the that I was missing vitamin D. I wasn't thinking about that and that I should be getting that from the sun, but I, the climate itself was prohibiting that, um, and I wasn't taking a supplement. So I started – the first thing the mind, at least my mind, came up with was this is, this is because I'm not eating meat. That's what my mom would say. That's what my, many doctors would say, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if you start to search for solutions to your problem, because especially in the eighties, there weren't a lot of people who were experienced at eating plant-based diet who, and there was in some cases, some just generally lacking knowledge. Um, we, we tend to run into people who present a solution, which is not plant-based. Um, and they point to your, not to your plant-based diet is the reason and it reinforces this emotional commitment, and then, uh, or this emo- this uh, embedded uh, belief system that you have that has emotional content. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little something caught in my throat. And then we we also have um, we also have this, as I discussed in the last chapter of the book, we have this uh, science in science, or at least in anthropology, I discuss how if you look at all the ways that people have looked at evolution, they all, according to one author, I cited a paper from uh, a person who's an anthropologist and uh, a specialist in literature, um, noticed that every single um, account of human evolution fits the mythic hero journey. So we look at the past, and it's all about this initially inept, um, underpowered individual who's kind of stuck in a certain place, which for humans was 
the trees, supposedly, and then um, through some type of some special experience, he or she becomes aware of greater possibilities, and that would be the savannah, and then some gift from the gods um, or from a enlightened master is given, which in the story of evolution is our intelligence or tools or something gives us that ability to take on this greater challenge. And then we go through a series of challenges, which in the story of evolution is the ice ages and dealing with all the beasts and so forth and all of that. And then you become the hero and you bring home literally the bring home the bison and and save the damsel which is you know the family by doing this uh, great deed and then you run into the 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 what's the hero's paradox of course which is that now you have all these great abilities but the abilities end up turning against you so now you have this great civilization and now you're poisoning the environment and blah 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 so it all fits the now you have to deal with this challenge of the the gifts that were given to you are now turning against you. That's also part of the mythic hero's journey. So um, anthropology in particular is because of its um, very sparse evidence for human evolutionary changes, um, it's very prone to creative imagination about what happened. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, so, so this this sounds like uh, they're Joseph Campbell versus T. Colin Campbell. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, that's right. Well, at least in my case, and I think this is true of many people. I've watched people who say who were plant based, and then and then said that it wasn't working for them, and all of that. And I've watched these things over time, over years, in particular since I have resumed eating up a vegan diet, and I noticed that there is this the same kind of process going on. It's very deeply psychological, um, uh, and it, I don't mean that in a that people are mentally ill or something. It's just this way we are conditioned by our society to accept a certain lifestyle as normal, natural, and necessary, and it's very hard to break out of that tribal belief. So... You you fell for the uh, this naturalistic fallacy. You uh, went paleo. Why aren't you still paleo? Yeah, well, not paleo because it didn't do me well. So for, there's two again two strains that uh, answer that question. So one is while I'm paleo, I'm a very inquisitive person. Um, I I like to, I'm studious. I like to understand what I'm doing. So, and I have this background in philosophy. So, of course, I'm not just, I'm paleo, and I'm just, oh, I got the word from the paleo diet book, it's all good, and so on. I, I check up on the references. <laughs> you know, I adopt it because it sounds good, but then I want to know for sure that I'm doing, that it all fits together as presented. Um, so, when I start checking up the references, hey, it doesn't all fit together so greatly. A lot of these um, things stated as facts are really assumptions or hypotheses um, <clears throat> and so forth. So there's that intellectual 
inquiry going on while I'm eating paleo. And meanwhile, the diet is affecting my health. So I start to get increased eczema outbreaks and I start to have a resurgence of sinus problems that I had gotten rid of when I was eating a vegan diet. And I um, start to have prostatitis symptoms in my late 40s. And when I go and get my cholesterol tested, it's 235 and my LDL is high. And it's all like not, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance on because I'm I'm uh, supposed to be on the healthiest diet for humans that's possible, and yet these numbers aren't saying that, my symptoms aren't saying that, and then also as I'm inquiring deeper and deeper into the intellectual foundations of this um, belief system, they're starting to, I'm starting to come up with... Um, flaws in logic and assumptions. So finally, uh, the straw that got me to completely change, I'd been in a state of kind of doubt and questioning, which was kind of recorded in my blog for, I would say it was about a year. Um, And uh, I had during that time met my current wife and she started eating paleo with me and after about a year she during that year she gained about 20 pounds um and to to make the story a little bit shorter she got very bad fibrocystic breast changes um there were other things as well but that was the most alarming thing and it reminded me when it happened of I had seen it in my former wife as well when we went from eating plant-based to eating more when we adopted paleo after a period of time. She started to have those fibrocystic breast changes, and incidentally, she ended up going on to have breast cancer and recently passed away. Um, so I knew that fibrocystic breast changes are a risk factor for breast cancer, and I saw it happening in my new wife, and I don't want her to go through the same thing that I saw my former wife go through, and suddenly, like, a whole bunch of pieces of puzzle kind of fit together in my my mind, and I said, we're going plant-based, and it was pretty much like that. We just kind of, uh, within, a, within about two months, we were completely plant-based. And then, and then what happened in terms of your own experience? Well, my cholesterol went down 50 points. Tracy's breast um, breast issue completely healed in a month or three months. Totally healed in three months. She's sitting here, and um, and then uh, she dropped 20 pounds, and you know our health improved dramatically. I, I haven't had a sign of prostatitis since uh, going plant-based again. So I'm completely happy with the results. And now I'm more informed and have a better evidence base and also know what mistakes I made in the past. So I now feel better than I have, you know, in all my life, basically. 
So in, uh, in your book, Powered by Plants, which is basically kind of looking, looking at the whole paleo argument, I think if there had been no paleo movement, you might not have written the book. But you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, the, I guess the basic argument is, this is how our ancestors ate before we got all sissified by civilization. Correct. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So what's what's wrong with that argument? It has it has, you know, for, for me, for like a guy, you know, it has a lot of appeal. I remember, you know, my dad like doing cookouts on the Fourth of July and on Father's Day and like grilling the meat. And, you know, it, it, it told the story of manhood that I wanted to achieve. And, you know, there's the whole you know, I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. Like I'm being oppressed by this civilization and I just want to find my inner, you know, manhood and, and be natural. What's, what's wrong with that narrative? Well, I would uh, first say that's exactly part of what, you know, draws males in particular to paleo. And I have to say that was part of the package that's put in front of of everyone and that's part of what attracted me to paleo too is there's this whole masculinity thing hooked up with the idea of eating meat and hunting and all of that as well um so there's that great story but that connects back to what i was saying earlier but i you know as i say in the book there's one major problem with this is that it's simply what we call a red herring in philosophy um it's simply here's Here's what we're trying to do is figure out what the ideal optimum diet for humans, well, for modern humans, the ones who are walking around on the planet right now. So where better to study that than among modern humans? And then suddenly somebody comes, wait a minute, no, we should look at what people ate 500,000 years ago. And because uh, then they maybe trail along what you kind of said, because now we're all sensified and, you know, this isn't really the way we're natural. We're supposed to eat, or it's not our natural state. There's the naturalistic fallacy thing, you know, what's natural is best. Um, so let's look at that. Well, that's like, it's just a distraction because the if you want to find out what's best for modern humans, you should just study modern humans. You don't need to know what people 500,000 years ago did because these people are right in front of you. In other words, we don't try to figure out why what's the best diet for rats in the laboratory by trying to find out what rats ate 500,000 years ago. (laughs) We just study rats and we, we take modern rats and we feed them different foods and find out what makes them healthier. That's all you need to do. (laughs) So it's just a total distraction. That's number one. That's the biggest thing. It's distracting us from readily available evidence that's, you know, replicated in hundreds or thousands of studies on modern humans instead we're going to we're going to go from there to a lot of speculations about what people ate 500,000 years ago because you know they didn't leave videos they didn't leave uh, diet records they uh, you know didn't take photos and post them on Facebook of what they were eating we don't have any idea except from little bits and pieces of evidence which is it's uh, selective because organic matter decays over time in some environments more quickly than others. And so 
everything, all the bits of evidence we have from the past of what humans ate is is greatly um, biased by the 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 way evidence is preserved in the fossil record. So, for example, bones, yeah, they last a fairly long time um, because they're mineral, but you know, stems or husks from corn, which this is an example, they're not going to last. We're not going to have a, a garbage pile of corn husks from 500,000 years ago if, you know, such a thing had existed because it just decays within 50 or 100 uh, days and it's gone. Right, that's, a, that's like look, looking through your, your garbage from a year ago and discovering that all you all you had was like you know, Bud Light and, yeah, right. and McDonald's takeout. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Because that's what survives. So, um, so those are that's those are the two main problems. I think is that that uh, fossil record is highly biased, and and uh, the the whole direction is just a distraction from a more reliable source of evidence, our you know, current, um, the current human population. Right. Now, you, you lay things out in pretty stark terms, and I really enjoyed the the dichotomies that you created between plants and animals and between plant eaters and flesh eaters. And, yeah. and you, you know, you say very starkly that this is the hypothesis here. We have to choose one. We're either supposed to be eating a lot of starch or a lot of animal flesh. You know that we're, we're either supposed to be eating sweets or meats. And so first of yeah. all, where, where what's the basis for making that distinction, that line in the sand, as opposed to, um, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, some in moderation and we're 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 omnivores and we can have something of each. How did you decide what, what, what was the evidence that led you to say, no, it's it's this stark. We're either predominantly one or the other. All right. That's a great question. It actually I had originally thought to call the book the omnivore myth, but on advice from some other reviewers, I decided to change the name but I but the the that name that I originally came up with came uh, to me because I believe this whole issue is based on what I call the omnivore myth so the omnivore myth to me is the the base belief in it is that there can be an animal that is optimally adapted to eating both plant and animal food, and that there is such an animal in existence, and that would be humans. Or there are multiple animals in existence. So what I found when I started looking for evidence that there is such a thing as an evolutionarily adapted omnivore is that there aren't any. <laughs> All the omnivores we have evidence of in existence are fall into one of two classes. They're either predominantly animal eaters, like wolves. They're highly adapted to eating animals. But when they're forced to or 
due to circumstances, they'll eat some plants. Um, or they're high, or on the other hand, we have the type of animal that's highly adapted to eating plants, but when, again, circumstances make it necessary or opportunity arises, that animal will eat some animal matter. And so a portion of one chapter of the book is list, you know, I have a table you saw, list um, all of the commonly cited omnivores. I basically got, I went through the scientific literature and I tried to find every kind of animal that was, um, that was called an omnivore. <laughs> and, and they're called omnivores because what? Because they can be observed sometimes eating animals, sometimes eating plants. So it's a behavior, the, 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 the um, label omnivore is applied based on behavior. And so I was looking for, is there some kind of physiology that scientists are using to identify something as an omnivore? And I couldn't find it. <laughs> there's no, there's no uh, to my knowledge, at this point in time, there's no distinguishing feature that labels or that um, enables biologists to classify an animal. I'm talking about anatomical or physiological feature that, that uh, leads to um, biologists labeling an animal an omnivore. It's based on behavior. So, and and so behavior. I want to I want to unpack that a little bit because to someone just listening without without the background of the book it might not make total sense like why couldn't somebody you know there's there's uh, you know sprinters and long distance runners and then there's people in the middle that there's there's in a lot of ways there are continua but you you make a point that is is so obvious that I had to laugh the point is basically plants and animals are different from each other. Yep, <laughs> really different That's from each other. And so someone who is adapted to eat one is naturally inevitably going to be ill adapted to eat the other. Can you talk about like, wh when did that occur to you? Because it's such an obvious thing that no one would have ever think of it. And yeah, and, and what are and what are those differences? Can you just sort of lay them out? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, well, how did that occur to me? Well, this is actually largely a result of my experience with macrobiotics and with macrobiotic uh, way of eating and with I'm a, I'm a licensed practitioner of Chinese medicine so I have a master's degree in oriental medicine so we use the uh, the theory of yin and yang or the classification um, method of yin and yang to uh, distinguish complementary but opposite types of phenomena. Um, so um, it, you know, just came to me very clearly as I was looking into this omnivore thing and so forth, that of course this, this distinction arises simply because plants and animals are so distinct. So plants, for example, are stationary. Animals move around. P plants are relatively silent. They don't bark. They don't make any particular kinds of noises, whereas animals make all kinds of squeaks and so forth. And when they move around, they are moving the brush around them and so forth. So they make a lot of noise. And 
uh, animals are uh, have strong odors um, due to their physiology, and plants, you know, not so much except in their flowers. Um, and um, plants are composed primarily of carbohydrate with very little protein and fat, relatively speaking, and animals are composed primarily of protein and fat with practically no carbohydrate. And uh, what colors a plants are, you know, pre- predominantly green, but they have, you know, very bright flowers um, and that and fruits that are require to be detected. They require color vision, and uh, animals are they're mostly camouflage colored. They're they're colored so that they blend into their surroundings. So they're um, uh, they're they're colored in order essentially to be invisible. So for some animal that's hunting, a vision isn't particularly important because because the animal might not be particularly visible, but the the odor and the sounds that that animal are making are going to be your way of tracking that animal. Um, so, but whereas for a animal that eats plants, detecting colors could be very, very important because the fruit may not be ripe, the the fruit may be poisonous, uh, the flowers are an indicator of the coming of fruits. All those things are signs that food is going to be available. <clears throat> and vision is a way to detect those because, the, as I stated, the odor and the sounds that it makes are practically nil. So, um, so because of these vast, these very distinct differences between plants and animals, an animal that's highly adapted to getting, uh, being succeeding um, pro- at uh, hunting for a living is going to be sent. Their senses are going to be highly tuned to detecting animals, and the senses of a plant eater are going to be highly tuned to detecting the types of plants that that animal needs to uh, to survive. And going back to the difference between the plants and animals quickly again, I mentioned that plants are high in carbohydrate and low in relatively low in protein and fat. So their distinguishing flavor is what carbohydrates, it's sweet. And the distinguishing flavor of meat um, is going to come from the proteins and fats. So an animal that's highly adapted to eating plants is going to have a strong sense of pleasure and seeking for sweets. And an animal that's highly adapted to eating um, meats will have a very strong sense of pleasure to, from eating protein and fat in its native state without any condiments or anything like that <laughs> or cooking. All right. So one of the things that I loved was just you, you point to the fact that, that, you know, tastes like chicken is a catchphrase for how humans basically think all types of meat taste like chicken. It would be like like a, a lion, you know, having a pear and going, oh, it tastes like apple. <laughs> exactly. You're right. Exactly. Just turn it around and think, just try to imagine being in another world in which all plants basically taste the same to you. That's what that's the world of a carnivore, because they practically, as I point out in the book, they have so few um, 
taste receptors, they can't distinguish the types of flavors that we can. Um, where, it, whereas, as you pointed out, for us, it's that's the catchphrase that people come up with. Everything tastes like chicken. <laughs> well, why? Because we can't really taste meat. We we can get a, a sense of the fat that it, that's in it and so forth, but it's all studies really point to if you take meat in its native state, it's just kind of bland to humans, which is why we have ketchup and mustard and, and all that stuff, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, on the other hand, if we were, a, if you're a carnivore, if you see carnage, then you say, well, that's food, right? So you go for that. You enjoy seeing that because it means that food's on the way and you're going to have uh, nourishment so that you can reproduce and, and uh, sustain your family and so forth. So those signals that we get from nature or from our senses are guiding us constantly towards what's the best thing for us to eat so that we can sustain the best of health so that in the evolutionary idea we can have the best reproductive chances and then pass on our, our uh, genetic heritage Oh, I, I never thought of that, that a, a flower, when we give flowers to someone, it's kind of a promise of future care. Yeah, exactly. That's we right. see that as a, we see that as that portends the future for us. If we're any animal there that, that's um, adapted to living off fruits of any sort, which I, uh, in my, in my book, I, I um, identify, I talk about botanical fruits, anything that's a, a fruit of a plant, which doesn't mean just fleshy, sweet fruits. It's all grains, seeds, legumes, nuts. All of these are botanical fruits of plants. All of those are portended. Our first knowledge that they're coming is there's a flower. So the flower is a signal that nourishment is on the way. And my contention is in the book is that it's this hooking up this knowledge or developing this knowledge that led in large part to our cognitive evolution that by through the knowledge of plants um, of how plants have a life cycle and what uh, are the signals of food coming that we developed our first medicine, we developed the, the rudiments of agriculture and so forth, and then our civilization, um, you know, flowed from that whole um, understanding of, of the life cycle of plants. Mm. So another point that you make that I've never seen articulated this way anywhere else is the idea of scarcity versus excess, that... Every, every organism has to adapt right. to to either scarcity of a particular nutrient or excess. Could you explain that concept and and how it plays into into this construct? Absolutely. So uh, this is visible throughout the, uh, all, all biological life. Every uh, organism. Uh, is embedded in a particular environment, and that environment will either 
is uh, most environments have either a scarcity or an excess of some um, nutrient or element that that particular plant need or uh, organism requires to thrive. So uh, initially in the book, I used the example of different types of plants. So you have like desert adapted plants and you have the opposite extreme plants that live in water. So desert adapted plants have a scarcity of water. They just like the water adapted plants, like a lily, I use the example, and a cactus. Well, the cactus needs water, but the environment it's in has a scarcity of water. So what does the cactus do? It's paradoxical. The cactus becomes very succulent in a desert environment. Why? Because its environment favors, naturally selects for those individuals that can retain fluids. So uh, drought-adapted plants are succulent, whereas you look at the lily that lives in water, um, it's got a super abundance of water. It's got more water than it can need, than it can use. So what does it have to do? It has to come up with some kind of mechanism to prevent from getting waterlogged. And, you know, people who take care of plants know this. If you, if you give too much water to a succulent plant, it'll kill it. And if you give, um, because it will take up too much water and then it will um, rot. And on the, Converse, if you don't give enough water to the lily, it's not in, immersed in enough water, it will die um, because it doesn't get enough. So it's, its water requirement is higher um, because it's adapted to a highly uh, liquid environment. So the, the same applies to animals. Animals that have a diet that's super abundant in protein, for example, have mechanisms for detoxifying and getting rid of the excess amino acids. They're highly, and because of that, they have a, an extraordinarily high requirement for amino acids. The, the example of cat, cats, they have to get a, if I remember correctly, it's about 25% of their calories as a minimum as, as a protein because if you give them less than that, they won't meet their basic uh, amino acid requirements because they have automatic, an automatic system that turns a large part of the protein they consume into glucose. Whereas an animal that uh, is adapted to a low-protein diet has mechanisms for conserving uh, amino acids and recycling so it can... Uh, it, can, it will thrive on a lower protein intake, and, and because of its highly conservative use of protein, protein in excess becomes a toxin to that type of uh, highly, uh, highly protein-conservative organism. So this, this is a very elegant evolutionary solution that every organism is evolved for getting rid of stuff that is in in abundance right so it, right. it uses it uses what it needs and is very good at getting rid of the rest and the things that are scarce um it's it's very good at hoarding 
And exactly. so, and so if you flip that around, if you create sort of an evolutionary mismatch and you suddenly put the water lily in the desert or the cactus in a pond or put the human in an environment where all of a sudden animal protein is easily accessible, you're going to cause problems. Exactly, because now the environment works against the mechanisms. This is or the mechanisms are mismatched to the environment now and uh, where as in the original environment, for example, the lily had to keep getting rid of water. Now it's put in the desert. If it keeps getting rid of water there, what happens? Death. Same thing for the uh, cactus. When it was in the, de when it was in the desert, it had to keep getting rid of water and it became highly adapted to doing that, put it in the water. Now it, it's, it's, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, holding on to water. Now you put it in the water and starts holding on to all of that water. It becomes uh, waterlogged and, and then it also dies. So the same thing in, for any type of animal. If the animal is adapted to a diet that's high in carbohydrate, for example, we have mechanisms for burning off excess carbohydrates. That's called dietary thermo thermogenesis. It's, it's not... There's a limit to that. It's not like you can eat carbohydrate till the cows come home and you'll never get an adverse effect. But there's a buffer. It has a that we have a system that buffers against excess carbohydrate consumption. Um, so if we have uh, a low carbohydrate environment, then we start to have we can start to have negative effects, which are recorded in so many you know um, studies on. Uh, on low carbohydrate diets where people get constipation and they get moody and they get all kinds of side effects that they don't like because their body is, is adapted to processing a large amount of carbohydrate that's from the native environment. Now they're being asked to adapt to an environment that's opposite to what the body's metabolism is adapted. Right. And, and, and unlike a water lily or a cactus, it could take decades for humans to really see the clinical uh, results of a mismatched diet. Yeah, this is a, a example I use early in the book um, is lipid metabolism. So if an animal is adapted to a, to a diet that's high in fat and cholesterol, as an example, dogs or cats, they have mechanisms for um, reducing their cholesterol production, endogenous cholesterol production, it can go to zero in dogs. Um, so they're just relying on the cholesterol in their diet. And, and then they have uh, other mechanisms for dealing with the potentially deleterious effects of having excesses of fat and cholesterol coming into the system, where humans lack those mechanisms. So it doesn't kill you right away um, to eat a high-fat, high-cholesterol diet. But over time, over time, that stuff accumulates and it starts to plug up, you know, various channels in the body. You know, we have atherosclerosis. It develops, it feeds the process that leads to atherosclerosis. And um, that's a type of long-term effect. So it, you don't notice the effects right away, but 20 years down the road, because we're a long-lived species, the effects of that, if it's sustained over time, start to show up. Right. 
So there's there's a lot more that uh, we could go into here, but I'd love to shift to the the hunting myth. And here here's how uh-huh. here's how I heard it. You know the story that that made sense to me when I didn't have more information. So human beings are persistence hunters. We can sweat, so that means you know that we're we're the fastest animal over dozens and hundreds of miles. So we can outrun them, the rest of them. You know, born to run. Running made us human. That because right. we we now could could chase those animals down. The you know, when we learned to harness fire, we could cook them. That caused our brains to grow. We had to develop language so that we could communicate with other hunters because we we lacked. Uh, the speed and and talons and claws to bring the animals down without them, that basically hunting made us human. And that we, right. we are, you know, we have um, binocular vision like predators as opposed to, um, you know, deer and birds that, that are that are prey animals. So, yeah, right. so yeah, that, that's a good story, and it makes it in, in its own context. It makes a lot of sense. What's what's the rebuttal to that story? Well, yeah, it's what you call a just so story. So, first thing that I want to respond to is the idea of well, we have binocular vision like predators, right? So, what's happened there is that there's a there's just a jump, right? We completely forget that every single every other primate also has binocular vision and they're plant eaters. So binocular vision is an example of what we what what we call convergent evolution. In other words, uh, cats and dogs have binocular vision because it assists them with hunting. Primates have binocular vision because it assists them with with going from limb to limb in trees um, looking for fruit. So binocular vision evolved in these two different lineages for different reasons. Um, so then leaping from the fact that now we have binocular vision and so do dogs, therefore we must have a, by nature, um, be, be adapted to a diet like dogs is a non-sequitur. Right? It's like completely dropping out this this uh, background lineage and and the, the the reason why we have, and without recognizing that the reason that we have binocular vision is different from the reason why dogs have binocular vision. <laughs> um, so what else is wrong with that story? Well, a lot of things like cover in the book. So we don't have, we, uh, yes, maybe we have, uh, over a distance of 100 miles or whatever, a um, greater speed than some other animals. The, the problem with that, the pro, there are several problems with that story. Well, let's take a look at the environment in which this was supposed to evolve. So humans are a very water-hungry species. According to this story, we evolved in basically a desert. So we're chasing down animals, sweating like mad, without any water stations. We're not doing the Boston Marathon now. We're not talking about uh, an, an assisted long-distance marathon race where there's a 
a car following behind, giving you water, and there's water stations when you go along. We're talking about running across the open desert, chasing down a kuru. Um, what's the problem with that? If we're sweating like this, running across the desert, we get dehydrated, we get overheated, we get hypothermia. We still get hypothermia even though we have all this assistance during marathon races. It doesn't fit with our current understanding of the water requirements and the susceptibility to hypothermia that we have in modern assisted circumstances. What's another problem with that? We're, we're, um, when we look at hunter-gatherers that are known to, in, to engage in persistence hunting, their return rate is very low. We're talking about maybe they get, by persistence hunting, they get one um, successful hunt per month. That's according to the research cited in my book. So you can't live on a one car. You can't feed a family. You can't feed a tribe on one carcass per month. Uh, and in addition, you just as I go through all the numbers in the book, uh, the the success rate is so low that we have to imagine that our persistence hunter hunting ancestors were doing several persistence hunts per week, basically on an empty stomach. So they're all running 20-mile marathons two or three times a week on an empty stomach, hoping that eventually they're going to get that one successful hunt. So this is, this is the um, play-the-lottery style of financial planning. Exactly. Right. You have, you have no money. So every week you have to play the lottery in the hopes of like, not only is it stupid, it's not even possible. Right. Right. Exactly. So is, it's that, not is, even possible. is that is that kind of the, the punchline of powered by plants is that the only way that someone or that a group of men could could engage in persistence hunting is if they had if they didn't need to, if they already were powered by the carbohydrates in plants. Exactly. That's the punchline. If they um, we know from studies of those hunter-gatherers that when, when do they do this persistence hunting? They do it when the plant foods are flush. They got plenty of plant foods. They don't have to help the women go gather anymore. It's time to do a little sporting activity. Let's go hunt down some kuru. <laughs> we have plenty of food in our stomachs. Now we can engage in a riskier activity for the hope of that extra ability luxury food right. and that's that's what we see happening you know uh, as i uh provide the evidence in the book also that's what we see happening in chimpanzees as well they hunt when they have plenty of fruit available when they don't have plenty of fruit available man they're looking for plants right. <clears throat> so so one of, the, one of the things you say is that you know hunt hunt men who are hunters um, by temperament or by, by physiology or, or, you know, obviously we're not ever going to be a hunter like a tiger, but who are sort of closer, better able to hunt, were selected not by natural selection because they were bringing home the bacon, but because it was sexier, that, they, that men somehow convinced women <laughs> that, that, that a hunter was a better mate. How, did the, how the hell did that happen? Yeah, right. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I just 
suggest that as a hypothesis because if you look at if you look at the reality of it economically, humans because of our physiology couldn't actually afford to invest except in extreme environments like the circumpolar environments. They couldn't really afford to invest in hunting um, as a subsistence strategy initially in our earliest stages of evolution um, without a background of having a high capability of of, uh, of securing plenty of food from plants. So then what happens? Well, um, my only, I'm only off, in the book, I'm only offering this as a potential hypothesis, and that is that just like in, um, in modern circumstances where winners of sport, sporting events are sort of idolized, they become the, the magnets for attention from both men and women, they become you know, potential leaders, that uh, those who were able to bring home the bison, in other words, the extra buck, the extra food, the luxury food, were, were seen as the best or best potential providers. So therefore, they attracted more female attention and they, become, they became selected uh, in that way. So they had a greater, more opportunities for reproduction because the, the early human women looked at them and said, hey, that guy not only can bring home plants, but he can also bring home that animal. So I'm going to go have some, uh, you know, we'll have children with him and then then my children will be more like powerful and, you know, capable like him. And so then the genes get passed on. But along this whole time, all of the species is still dependent on on plants as the what's called in anthropology the fallback food because the animals aren't always there the because due to migration and due to starvation and so forth the animals can be very lean and that that uh, bison he brings home isn't always bacon like it's often very stringy and partially inedible or oftentimes rejected by hunter gatherers because they're so lean. Um, so you still have to fall back on eating the potatoes and sweet potatoes and or the foods like those. Well, it's it's almost like uh, you know the in a divorced couple with kids where the you know the dad is like the favorite parent because he just takes them out to movies and McDonald's and Disneyland while right. the mom is doing all the fallback feeding and nurturing. Exactly. That, I mean, that's when. Um, uh, in the book, I discussed uh, uh, one anthropologist's observation about the the San people. They they go hunting. They sometimes do persistence hunting, and they also go hunting with bow and arrow. Well, these people are capable of producing a high powered bow that actually could kill an animal, and they have poison they put on their tips, right? Mm-hmm. So they could easily have have a bow an arrow that would actually bring home the the wild boar more often. But as a matter of fact, they have these wimpy little bows and they shoot these very little arrows with a little bit of poison on it. And then they do the person after they wounded it, then they do the persistent hunting. And the, the, the person who observed this said, it has, it's like, that's a sporting event. That's not, it's, there's all these handicaps. This is not, 
for subsistence. This is just this is just playtime for the men. <laughs> uh, which of course it would be. They got plenty of food. The women brought home all of the food and sustenance and they're taking care of the kids. Now the guys go out and say, Hey, let's go hunt down some kuru here. I've got this wimpy little bow. We've got some little poison. We can go run for a few hours and come back. And the women will have plenty of food when we get back, even if we don't um, bring anything home. So, hey, we're good. <laughs> uh, and, and yet it's, it's, you know, hunting and meat is, is such an important part of the culture, it seems to me. Like if you, and I think maybe that's one of the big, cultural blowbacks against veganism is it's almost like you're, you know, you're cutting off somebody's testicles that you're, you're saying you know, that, that, that manliness isn't important anymore. Right. Yeah. And I think it, you know, in part it goes back, it may go back to this very phenomenon where um, uh, this one thing that men seem to be particularly good at it relative to women because of you know the, the the physiology, the difference in physiology that that men have, the testosterone levels, et cetera, the the greater propensity to risk taking and that kind of thing that comes from having high testosterone, higher testosterone than women, that enables man to to be more successful at something that's a higher risk activity like hunting, and so somehow it gets installed in the collective psyche that now you're saying that this whole that men aren't aren't necessary <laughs> you know mm. being a man isn't necessary so so um whereas if you if you're saying meat is important and i think that's a big part of the draw as you said earlier you hinted at earlier of the paleo movement and the low carb movement is that now men are necessary because we have to bring home that meat that the women, you know, they're not that good at bringing home the meat, and plus they don't know how to grill it right and all of that. So we can do that um, and really, put, you know, contribute to the to the evolution of our species. Um, it's kind of putting men on the back burner, or at least on a equal footing with women, and that kind of, you know, doesn't doesn't feel good to some people of the male persuasion. <laughs> right. It's like, this, this is all I've got. You know, this is my only trick. Right. That's right. That's right. So I see we're, we're, we're at uh, about an hour. Um, and I, I just want to uh, maybe look back. We obviously, we, we have touched literally 1% of the parts that I've read. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. There is so much here. It's, you know, at a certain point, at like, 10% of the book done, I suddenly got the feeling like I was reading a book trying to prove to me that the sky was blue. I was like, well, this is so obvious. <laughs> I know. That's what I felt like. I, as I was accumulating information, I was like, after I got past this one point, I and mean, I was like, everything just fell into my lap. I was like, how can, how can it be that nobody sees this or very few people see this? How can it be that I even have to argue this? It just seems weird <laughs> so so given given what we've discussed so far and that it's a tiny percentage of a very very 
elaborate and well-referenced argument. Is there anything, if someone, if someone sends this to their paleo friend and they've listened so far, are there any, a couple of like obvious objections that someone's going to still make that we haven't talked about that maybe we can round out by, by covering? couple of obvious like objections. like if someone says well what well you know like veg you know vegans don't get enough b12 or they don't get yeah, enough yeah. iron or d um like what you know yeah well what, someone who's listened this I, far what, what what do they still have in in their holster right so i tried to cover all of those because i'd been in the in the paleo community for so long about 12 years i knew all the arguments that are used to try to you know, make it sound like eating meat is so essential to our evolution and our sustenance and our future health. So I covered the fatty acid thing and the B12 and all of that. So like B12 is often the holdout, but then the the omega-3 fatty acids has now become the latest thing, which um, which I covered extensively in the book. So B12, of course, you know, my big, uh, my main response to that is that B12 is not an animal product. B12 is a microbial product. And in the ancient environment, even only a couple hundred years ago, the B12 availability in the environment was dramatically higher than it is today because we weren't using chlorinated water. <laughs> Essentially, it comes down to that. Chlorinated water and all of our modern hygiene just basically eliminates a large part of the exposure to B12 producing microbes that we would normally have um, or that we would have in a natural circumstance. Um, and then the omega-3 thing, I think, is the other argument that is most commonly, um, you know, grabbed onto by advocates of meat eating. The whole idea is that we need to eat animal foods because we can't produce enough DHA to build a brain without eating meat. And that's a whole big part of the argument that meat made us human is that there was this particular nutrient in meat. And they, people have one by one, we've shown that that hasn't been the case. That there, you know, we could get iron, we could get this, we could get that, and then what came up next is the DHA. So the DHA is now the holdout. So I spent quite a bit of ink in the book going through the research that basically shows that we don't need dietary DHA, and it's to me. Uh, uh, of interest that it's it's even a question among people who are eating plant-based diets. I mean, the plant-based vegan dietitians and so forth who are still questioning whether we need to have dietary DHA. Some are suggesting that just to hedge our bets, we better take some algae-based DHA and so forth. And um, you'll have to read the book to get the full story, but there's like a, the summary is that there have been people building brains all over the planet and still are who aren't getting DHA on a daily basis and aren't regularly uh, consuming grass-fed animal products or fish, and they still build normal human brains on plant-based diets. 
Um, it's sitting right in front of us, <laughs> just like most of everything else I've said in the book. It's right there. Um, large groups of Seventh-day Adventists and Buddhists and Taoists and Jains and Hindus and blah, blah, blah. There's a big list. Large populations of people in China and so forth who are essentially getting either getting no dietary DHA or so little it's inconsequential. We have it's an example. The DHA issue is a very good example. Excuse me. I need water. It's a very good example of the scarcity versus conservation, a scarcity in con- uh, with conservation or abundance with ex- with uh, profligate expenditure adaptation. So GHA is indeed scarce in a plant-based diet, scarce to non-existent. However, the people who most matter in this regard, women are very capable of like 200 times more efficient than males at converting plant-based omega-3 into DHA. And not only that, they don't have to get it on demand during the baby's uh, gestation or lactation. They do it every single day of their lives under the influence of estrogen. They store it up in their hips in their gluteal fat, in their thigh fat, so that it's available there at all times, anytime there's a pregnancy, anytime there's a need for lactation, it's there. They're, they have evolution, if you want to say, produced a very elegant response of DHA storage in the curvy features of women for future demand. <laughs> so that that explains why Kim Kardashian is on the cover of uh, so many magazines. Exactly. Right. From an evolutionary psychology standpoint is that uh, curvy figure of a woman indicates that her, she has a large store of essential fatty acids for bringing children to full fruition. I'm glad I didn't learn about evolutionary biology until I got married. I think I think I, I would have been a very bad dating partner had I known this stuff. Right. I, you know, I kind of personally, as I, I don't know if it came across in the book, but I'm not, I'm not a believer nor a non-believer in evolution by natural selection. I think there are very. Um, reasonable arguments against large portions of the evolution by natural selection theory of human emergence. Nevertheless, my point in the book is if you take that perspective, which all the paleo people do, using your own argument, your paleo diet falls on its face. (laughs) Great. Well, that's that's an intriguing way to end. I I feel like if I follow that that statement that there's there's other ways to look at um, our, our current existence other, other than being explained by uh, natural selection. But I think I want to leave that for now. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will say that the arguments in the book, there's so many, there's so many great examples. And one of the things I love about the way you write is that I can, I can remember the I can remember whole lines of argument through just a single example, like the water lilies and the cactus. You have a great story about pandas. You have a great story about rhesus monkeys and cholesterol, and they all illustrate these points that are that are so important when when we're trying to figure out what our what our optimal diet is. So the book the book is powered by plants by Don Matez. And if people want to follow you and follow your work and see what you're up to and uh, keep reading your your latest, how can they stay in touch? Well, you can. Uh, I got a lot of stuff on the net. So I've got my blog, the vital. It's a donmatis.blogspot.com, uh, or you can just uh, Google vital wisdom, B-I-T-A-L wisdom. Um, then we have a web. We have a YouTube channel called Plant Based Solution, um, and we also have a website called PlantBasedSolution.com, and um, we have a blog called. Okay, so one's PlantBasedSolution.com, and the other one's ThePlantBasedSolution.com. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, and I'll put, yeah. For folks who are just listening auditorily, if you go to plantyourself.com, I'll have links to all that. So you don't have to write it down. You can just go yeah. and click. Yeah, that's good. And uh, and then, of course, I'm on Facebook um, with my name. And, uh, and then we have the Plant-Based Solution Facebook page and uh, Plant-Based Solution Health Group on Facebook. Facebook. Great. So, so for people who uh, like, it sounds like you have a solution. Like, what, what's what are the services uh, or products that you offer people? Well, we um, uh, besides my book, Tracy's got the book "Make Every Bite Count," which is a a vegan cookbook, and uh, we're um, we we provide. Um, nutrition consultation, private um, nutrition consultation by by uh, Skype or telephone or whatever works, email. Um, we have ebooks coming out. We, we have information, bunch of information products available and, on, and online to be released in, in the future. Um, we're, um, we have uh, more than 300, like 333 videos on our um, plant-based solution channel, which have recipes, nutrition information. Sort of, uh, some of the some of the videos I put on there are like Michael Grieger's, so they're covering specific topics like um, does soy cause thyroid suppression? Was a recent one or um, what's the ideal fat percentage of a diet and blah, 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 those kinds of things. You can just look up those. Um, and what else do we have? We've got the ebooks. So, yeah, we have other ebooks available right now. One's called The True Garden of Eating, which is uh, kind of a uh, cookbook and how to transition to a plant based diet. 
Great. Well, so it's yeah, it's, it sounds like there's a there's a lot of resources both for for people who are firmly in the plant based camp who are looking to to get new new recipes, new ways of cooking for people who are looking to help others transition. And for your your biggest market is uh, the soon to be disaffected paleo adherents who who wake up one day yeah. when when their health is compromised and, yeah. and all the things they did out of the, the best of intentions to uh, to to eat the, the, the perfect human diet uh, turn turn out to be uh, wrong and harmful. And uh, so I mm -hmm. think you, you have a great roadmap for those folks uh, back to first back to sanity and then and then back to health. Yep. Yep. That's our goal is to help people, even if they can, we can get people to eat, just cut down their animal product to 10% or less of the diet. It would make a huge difference for their health as well as for the uh, ecological impact of the human race on the planet. So um, ideally, we like to see people go totally 100% plant-based. That's what we do. That's what we recommend. But we are we cheer every reduction in animal products that people can make. <laughs> right on. Well, Don Matez, thank you so much. This has been eye opening. Um, I'm going to keep reading the book because there's more, every every page has more eye opening information for me, and I'm pretty well informed on this stuff. So you've you've both unearthed research that is is very far in you know out of left field in terms of the the normal things we read. You know, you've got uh, you know, general semantics uh, theory uh -huh. from, from Korzybski. You've got uh, Stanley Corin on uh, humans versus dogs. So there's a lot of things that are just new to me. And, and the way you put it together, uh, even things that I that I sort of that I knew, like the, the significance of taking aspirin for anticoagulation, all those things uh, create a, a very vivid and compelling picture. And I recommend this book to anyone who is confused about what is the optimal human diet. Thank you. I appreciate that. We've been we're not uh, strong at marketing or good at uh, production of information products. So anything that anyone can do to help us get the word out, we're we're really happy for. Right. Well, it's 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 high quality thought and high quality stuff. So um, yeah, people people listening, definitely definitely check this out. It's life changing. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much, Don. Be well. And you too. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Don Matez. Your action step, should you choose to take one, is to get his book, Powered by Plants, and read it. For extra credit, you might pick up one of the paleo books, either Neander Thin by Ray Audet, the book that first got him into the movement, or any of the books by uh, Cordain or Gary Taubes, and really compare them side, to side, side by side and see which tells a compelling story and which actually has scientific evidence behind it. I generally don't recommend books by, uh, by Taubes and the other low-carb folks. But in this case, when you, when you put them next to each other, it's a real education in evidence-based versus fantasy-based science writing. If you like the podcast and you'd like to help us grow, one of the best things you can do is go to iTunes and leave a review. You can also share links on social media, tell friends about it, get a tattoo. You can donate 
a little money to help defray all my costs. Down at the bottom right of plantyourself.com, there's a little donate button. You can put in whatever you like. The garden is slowing down these days. Um, most of the harvest is, is over except for the basil. So I've got a lot of work to do to figure out why the soil didn't support as much as we thought and get it ready for a fall planting. If you're in the Triangle region of North Carolina, I've got some events coming up. I've got a dessert making class from 1 to 3 p.m. on August 15th. That's a Saturday. I've got a four hour how to get started class on September 5th, also a Saturday for people who are new to the whole food plant-based diet and want a head start and some tricks and skills for transitioning. I've also got a couple of intro dinners in Hillsboro, North Carolina. Those are absolutely free. All you need to do is go online and RSVP, and you can find all that at plantyourself.com. In other news, the book Proteinaholic that Dr. Garth Davis and I worked on for most of this year is coming out in October. If you go to proteinaholic.com, you can pre-order, you can start reading about it. The, works, the website's a work in progress, but uh, me saying this in public will uh, light a fire under my butt to get more done on it. So that's why I did that. So I hope whatever's lighting a fire under your butt is fun and motivating and pushing you in great directions. And as always, be well, my friends.